Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, my very special guest is James Sinclair. James owns a portfolio of leisure and entertainment businesses, including soft plays, nurseries, animal and attraction parks, and recently an ice cream company, to name a few. He's built a 500-strong team to support these businesses and continues to grow them all over the UK. So, James, thank you very much for joining me today. I hope I got all that right. Yeah. Uh, I think you forgot one main thing, though. Go on, then. You didn't say it's my birthday. I was waiting to put that in. So James has decided that the best thing he could possibly do on his birthday would be to record a podcast with me. So thank you, James, yeah. for letting me be. That's how important you are to me, Rod. I love being a part of your special day. So James, to get started, obviously you left school and became a children's entertainer. I mean, fairly well, successful that. I- yeah, after a brief stint of working for Calvin Klein as a model. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I forgot that, sorry. So after the old Calvin Klein bit where you were moonlighting as Brad Pitt, you then set up a children's entertainment business, which was a bit of a one-man band, but you decided it wasn't enough, even though you were turning over about 120 grand a year, and you went on to create a group of companies that turns over roughly 13 million a year, and like I said, with 500 employees. So what did that journey look like, and what were the most pivotable point that you look back on and think those decisions if done differently would have had a serious effect on where you are today yeah I did start off as a magician as a kid trainer and I built that business up I just sort of had a realization that I was swapping time for money I didn't want to do that and so I looked to try and build a profitable business that would work without me in it and I realized that that process would take a period of time to achieve that and I wanted to invest into property and I want to have staff and I wanted to have something that wasn't, I didn't want to be a solopreneur. I wanted to be an, I did start an agency for kids entertainers. That was quite popular. But what I realized it was a low barrier to entry business. And I think as my career has progressed, I've tried to do higher barrier to entry stuff. Even in the property world, very rarely want to do residential stuff. I want to do commercial stuff. And I want to leverage more, leverage my time, leverage everything to build something that you can say, yeah, this is a proper organisation. So what then were some of those pivotal points then, do you think, when growing? And what do you think if you'd done differently at those points would have given you sort of, would have ended up on a very different course? All of the errors that I made in the early days was working out that, like how important margin is, how important residual income is. I think why lots of Brits want to invest in buy-to-let property is because they might not be professional investors in the, the sense that we know them, but they get, they put a bundle of money in something and every month they're going to get a return. And what I did with my early business days was I would go and get a customer. It was good margin, but I would do their fifth birthday party and they might not ever need me again in their lifetime. So and then I would go off and do bouncy cars or equipment hire. There's people's 40ths and 50ths. I had a, stretch limousine company they would only buy from me once even if I did the best possible job because people don't hire a kids entertainer every week just to have around on a Sunday 
And so I really tried to think about what can I do to leverage my customers? And then I thought, right, let's open an indoor play center. So I opened an indoor play center. And then I realized then customers only come to you twice a year. Someone opens up in the town. They would steal 30% of your trade, even if you was better than them, while the customers went and checked it out. And I started formulating this thesis around fickle customers. I didn't want to be in a business where people were fickle. And that sort of led me into the childcare route and opening day nurseries. I realized you found the customer, they stayed with you for four years. You had good average customer value, good lifetime value, and they're transacting with you regularly. So they were sort of blinded to the competition. And I started thinking, well, bloody hell, you don't put your kids in a score, then change them next week. If there's something goes wrong at the school, you, you persevere and work with it. And I just preferred those sorts of businesses. And the same happened with me with residential property. I started studying people that were very wealthy in property. And I sort of looked up Lord Sugar and I realized he didn't own flats and houses. He owned warehouses and office blocks. And I thought, well, how can I do that? And then I started buying the freeholds of the properties that our businesses operated out and then got really into commercial property. And I love that. It's a brief summary of my career from modeling to now. <laughs> so Balloon modeling. When you were scaling the business then from turning over, say, at the beginning, 100K and then getting to the next milestone of a million pounds a year, what were the main challenges and how did those challenges differ from going from a five million pound company to a 10 million pound company that is the thing a small business is just brilliant to run you keep profit per pound one of the big things like you turn 100 grand as a sole trader you keep most of your 100 grand you turn a million pounds as a bigger business you might only keep 50 to 100 thousand but the other 900 thousand you've turned will have equaled some form of stress to generate that extra £900,000, you go into this danger territory where you can become a professional at moving money around. And I did that. I was doing that five, six million turnover. I wasn't taking anything out of my business. The business was burning cash as we was growing it. And I started formulating these things like you either have one day nursery or 10, one restaurant or 10, one hotel or 10. Being a medium-sized business is, is very difficult because you start needing the infrastructure of a big business, but you don't have necessarily the cash flow to help you do that. So where I've been extremely lucky is 36 today, but in those sort of 20 to 32 years of age, I didn't need to extract cash out of my business so that it could breathe. And there, I mean, there were some hairy times where I only lost it all just because, not because it wasn't profitable, but because we was over-trading and really pushing the limits of where we was in business. But confident solar doesn't learn to sell well on calm seas. Those choppy seas have made me a confident sailor in terms of entrepreneurship, I would say. And you talked there a bit about cash flow and growing the business. How did you make the decision to start raising external capital? And at what point was that? And what was the hardest thing about raising money? Well, raising money is a challenge even today, even with a profitable business, we make circa a million of EBITDA and we'll probably make considerably more than that once all these bloody restrictions go away. I believe banks are going to be very, very cautious with businesses over the next couple of years as they try and work out what's going on with coronavirus. Lots of businesses, we borrowed a million quid on this Sybil's and Bibble's stuff and they've been invested a chunk of it and grown our business with it we've got to service that 
which doesn't scare me. You know, I've borrowed millions and millions of pounds and continue to do so. There's three things that banks look for when you start getting into the realms that I'm at. Number one, management. Who's the management behind the business? That's their primary focus. Number two is serviceability. And number three is security. And it is in that order, management, affordability, or serviceability, and then security. And I think everyone thinks it's security first. And it's just not. When you're borrowing, you know, past what you can pay off as a personal guarantee, a million plus, they're looking to see if the person borrowing is a numpty or not. And um, I always tell that management first, affordability and security. And so I'm constantly borrowing, constantly wanting to do more, and I'm borrowing to make, continue to do it. And so what do you think is the most difficult thing about it then? Is it just a case of making sure that you're satisfying those lenders or even investors into the business well, that you well, are? The difficult thing is... Well, the difficult thing is when you're over trading and you need cash yeah and that's what all entrepreneurs do that like push the boundaries you know they use their cash flow to grow their business and then they run out of cash flow and then they go can you help me mr bank manager and the bank manager doesn't want to do cash flow lending they want to do secured asset back lending or they want to know ahead of time now don't, don't get me wrong like once you've got like 20 years history and you have a need for cash flow lending because you want to do something. That's a different conversation. But in those first two, three, four, five, ten years, that's a struggle. But what all entrepreneurs have gone through, and probably if you had it given to you too easy, you wouldn't be very resourceful. And I've always had that mindset that it's not a lack of resources, it's a lack of resourcefulness that stops you doing things. Like I wanted to buy I bought an industrial estate in November. It was all lined up with the bank in April of 2020 and then obviously the world was falling apart and they pulled it and they said come back in six months well I'm a bloody buy the thing so I found another way of funding it I gave a deposit to the vendor and done some vendor finance on a 15-year private mortgage and he was happy with that and that's a classic sign of I didn't have the resources there but I did have resourcefulness and I found a way to do it and I'm paying it at three percent over 15 years now I will never touch the bank I'll just pay it off and uh I did put a 400 grand deposit down, um, don't get me wrong. That's just as an example when even at the level that I'm at with, you know, I own a lot of commercial property and I've got a lot of equity in it and I've got good cash flows and profitable businesses. I can even at my level get knocked back and I know people way above me that still have to play all the games with banks and stuff. And in terms of kind of purchasing those sites, are you always looking to purchase the site at some point or do you focus on leasing yeah. first? And what does that, how does that affect your balance sheet and what you're trying to show to potential kind of um, lenders or investors? I bank with a private bank and they know I do stuff outside of them. And they even say, go and do it, sort it out, then bring it back to us in a couple of years. It's not the bank manager that doesn't believe it. It's, you've got, it's the credit department. And you don't want to put something up. Yeah, the underwriters, yeah. And even though I bank with a private bank that they get me and understand me, they're having battles with their own credit team. They'll only go out on a limb for you, I find, once every two or three years. I think on a deal I did a couple of years ago, I, I pulled that card. So I've got to be a bit more stable for a couple of years and then we'll go back in. And are you always looking to purchase a site or would you ever lease? You know, I've got loads of that. I'm in Lakeside Shopping Centre, I'm on. Rory and Meg Retail Park. I'll never be able to own them. Yeah. Um, so we do lease, but it's definitely 
much better if you can own because you never have to talk to the landlord about dilapidations. You never have to talk to the landlord about renewing the lease. And, and I think a real brilliant thing is when you can own the freehold and then sell the business and rent the business to someone going forward. That, that can be a lovely little, yeah. little tickle. But, you know, it's funny as you get older, like, would I say, like, I've always been very, what I call, Jewish and Asian in my approach, like to buy and hold and never consider selling. Sometimes if someone offered me the right money, I probably would consider now. And, and, but then you think, then you have a lump of money and you've just got to go and find another investment, haven't you? And it's like it's back into the square one. Yeah, it's the opportunity cost of and, and returns over time. And what's, how's that sort of trade going to affect the overall outcome, I suppose, isn't it? So, I mean, with, um, we're just buying another one now, £1.2 million freehold. I've done a lease option, mm-hmm. talking about understanding the banks. Is we bought Rossi ice cream and um, we're buying a big new factory for it. And so I've done six months rent free and within two years, I've got a set price of what I can buy it for. Yeah. And I've told the bank already, but they said, yeah, well, you just get your EBITDA up to X, Y in the next two years and then we'll do it. That's a great thing because then you have to put no money into it. Yeah. Because I'm hoping that that's then going to be worth 1.350 or 1.4 by the time we do it in two years. So I've already helped myself to 200,000 equity. And then I'm sure I can convince the bank to say, well, look, lend me the million quid over 20 years and then the 200 over five years so that you've got the 400. Down. So they do the 200 on a bit of a cash flow lend, if you like. Yeah. That's another little trick that I like doing. We actually, on a, another site, did the opposite as freeholders offered the option to buy because that was one of the, the conditions of getting a tenant that we did want in. But the option to buy, we negotiated 10% above market rate at any time. So in 10 years, they would have the option to then repurchase that. And that was important for them because they were putting a lot of money into the site, not owning yeah. it. And it was important for us because we wanted to make sure that we, we obviously benefited from it and the market and we weren't going to lose out. So it can work both ways depending on kind of what, what everyone's after. Um, when you talked kind of about at the beginning about how when you were growing the company in sort of five, six million turnover, but you weren't taking any money out of the business, how do you decide whether to reinvest profits into that particular business or even start a new business with any profits? or to distribute to shareholders? What, what is it that, that will help you make those decisions? Well, the big problem is I own every day 100%. And I think I've always been quite obsessed with that. I don't know if that's the right way to be. I did have an angel investor at one point, and then I bought them back out because I hated the thought of it. It cost me a lot of money to do that. I didn't, didn't sit fit well with my how I like to be. It's just interesting, really, that I knew that I had enough income from my residential properties and through gigging and doing stuff like that. I could bring in a hundred grand doing that stuff. I lived quite comfortably that I worked hard though seven days a week and I was proper grilling stuff. And I just made that decision to grow the business and, and that's why I think I'm still here and I think only half a percent of businesses make it past ten years old. And I think that's the reason we've managed to be that. Mm. When you're looking at sort of purchasing a business, like recently you bought the ice cream business. How yeah, did, Rossi. Yeah. We bought Rossi ice cream. Rossi ice cream. The <laughs> best tasting ice cream you'll ever get, my friend. It's good weather for it. Yeah. 
And how, how does your investment philosophy change when looking at more of a trading operational business like that versus buying, say, the industrial site that you bought? So I don't see the industrial site as buying a business. I see that as buying security and investment. Yeah, exactly. But with businesses, they must all fold into our existing empire. So yes, we bought the Rossi Ice Cream Company, but our existing businesses already spend a quarter of a million pound a year on ice cream. We spend 100 grand a year on coffee. We sell a lot of catering stuff. And when we bought Rossi, it's a 100-year-old brand. I sort of vision that Rossi could be our headline catering brand for all of our venues. We could make our own coffee, make our own slush, make our own ice cream and sell it within. And that's pretty much what I decided to do. And that's where I am today. And so I have to make sure that everything we buy folds in. We bought a sand art business that we supply to born leisure that own butlins and havens and all of that and others but we also make teddy bears and now we're selling those teddy bears into that company so that's helped that business that the marsh farm and lee valley animal adventure park those adventure parts are buying our ice cream selling our teddy bears doing our sand art and that's really important that we have leverage and synergies within the existing group before we consider buying anything brilliant and what are the most important metrics to you for analysing the performance of your business? Three, producing a monthly profit and loss that shows a monthly profit and loss. Number two, labour to turnover ratio. And three, average customer value. And I think those three levers, and when you go into the average customer value one step further, how often they transact with us, what's the lifetime value, and what's the average customer value per transaction. So we look at those three things. Because what's really exciting about Rossi Ice Cream is we supply Asda, we supply Morrison's and Co-op and others. You know, when you look, right, okay, they're spending 20 grand a year with us. As long as we don't do anything wrong, they'll continue buying from us. So over 20 years, they could be worth half a million pounds to us. So that's good lifetime value. They're transacting with us weekly, monthly, and each order is about two grand. So that's really good. And there's good margin on ice cream. If there was a fourth, it would be margin. There's no point in an SME business that's turning under 100 million quid, focusing on anything where there isn't margin. The only time that I would consider not looking at margin is if you're doing serious scale, and I mean Lidl, Tesco, Sainsbury, serious scale, and then you're turning billions to make millions. But so many businesses, they'll turn two, three million quid, and the owner's helping themselves to 150 grand a year, and they're like, oh, that's good, but they're bloody, it's the most stressful, never see your family, is that really a life? Why don't you go and go and work for someone and considerably less, but have a life and not have the stress? Exactly. So if you can have a business, you want to make sure margin's top priority. And what sort of margin would you look for in a business? Or does it vary depending on, on the well, other? In my leisure business, we have a, I always say to people, look to do a times five business. Or what does that mean? So if I buy this pen that I'm holding for a pound, sell it for five quid, people go, plenty you take the mic there, aren't you? I go, well, no, look at my business, 20% for the product, 20% for the staff, 20% for the Batman, 20% for the overhead, and 20% for us. It's not really that greedy. And that's when you look how many X's come out of a business, like a whippy ice cream is £3.50 if you go and buy it for an ice cream van. And I know it costs them 35p to make it. So their time is to buy 10. But what people forget is to buy a brand new ice cream van is 120 grand now. And they've got a season that probably only lasts four and a half months. And so they need to be doing those margins yeah. and you understand why they're doing it when you break it down like that. 
Well, their fixed cost, the cost of keeping the lights on is, is high in those businesses. Yeah. Think about a Domino's Pizza, another classic example. 450,000 turnover per Domino's store on average in the United Kingdom. And they're helping themselves to 40 grand profit. So it's like a 9% net net on 450 turnover. So we all know, everyone knows, it costs like £1.50 to make a pizza. You don't need to do anything other than pop to... You can do it yourself at Tesco's, £1.50. And you know you're paying 12 quid for that pizza. Bloody hell, they're making so much money. No, no, no. Making about 40 grand out of 450 grand. That's... Because what's happened is people have done a boot sale once and they've paid five quid for their pitch and they've sold everything and think, Christ, this is profitable. Businesses make so much money. They, they forget the business rate for that and the PAYE and the national insurance and the pension schemes and all the other bits and bobs that, that I've worked out. 43% of our turnover goes to the government in VAT, yep. business rates, all of the other stuff. It's 43%. So if we turn 10 million, 4.33 million gone. That's before we've paid the staff, before we've paid the rent, before we've the overhead. And that's why you look at so many businesses only making 2 3% net. And 2 3% net's all right if you're turning billions, isn't it? But it's not great if you're on half a million turnover. And I think that's where certain industries are very in a precarious position, like, for example, construction companies, the SME ones, that are working on very, very small margins. And as soon as oh. there's a slight change in some of their costs, Awful. they're blown up. It's, it's funny you say that. I had dinner with someone that was an FD for an electrical company. They do all the big high-rises yeah. in London, but proper jobs. They've done 150 million turnover and they had an EBITDA of 2.3 million. I mean, yeah. what if someone steals a bit of stuff from you? It's going over. Yeah. So we work, obviously work with a lot of big contractors and some of the stuff you hear is just nuts. When you're working on tight margins, you've got to be quite clever about how you're drawing down on the cash flow, how you're financing things. So for example, if I were building up a, a block of flats, for example, is working out the drawdown or the schedule of payments for the contractor. And what you'll find is often they'll make it very top heavy so they'll try and put as much value into the demolition or getting the foundations done because as a percentage of that total job they'll get that and if they're financing their payment or factoring invoices for example they want to get as much paid up front because then they can go into a job and actually not have to put much of their own money into it but it's very very risky very difficult business to run i'm sure there's lots of other i mean that's just the one example that came to my mind when thinking about low margin stuff and obviously you mentioned the supermarkets and farms is probably another one so yeah i, I definitely agree with See, that. the good thing about the good thing about a supermarket though where they've got it literally it's such a brilliant business model because the customers return every week they don't pay their suppliers for 120 days so they're building up big tranche of cash flow and then they do sell other stuff, don't they, like their insurance and banking, and then they own the real estate. I mean, it's where they're just their cash, but the model is just genius. Genius, genius. It's the suppliers who will struggle on those 120-day yeah. terms and things like that. I mean, we say they make 2 3%, but I know, like, they buy a tub of ice cream from us, like pallets at a time for, like, 180, and they're selling it at 325 so, you know, if they're selling a lot of it, it's just what it nets down to, but they're making a, probably a 35% GP, but then they're netting it down to 3% after all their costs. Yeah, but, yeah. 
I'm sure they factor in loads of hidings in there. Like they own so much freehold and property yeah. as well, don't they? They just appreciates and appreciates. Yeah, and then obviously they're they're updating their balance sheets with that appreciating property every quarter to show sort of the investors and banks that it's a bit more healthy. But obviously they're not crystallising on any gain or loss at that time. So yeah, it's an interesting one how those businesses do. So. In terms of then your business and leisure, I found out recently, as we were very briefly discussing before I click record, is that some businesses are very factor heavily on the weather. So we've got bowling alley, and when it's the sun shining like it has been, not many people yeah. want to decide and go bowling. And you've I think I did tell you that when you spoke to me months ago, didn't you, Mark? <laughs> I know. So you probably thought he's lying. I was trying to sell it to James. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I've just—that's the bad thing about experience. You end up knowing stuff, don't you? (laughs) So you've done with your portfolio of businesses. They work quite well with the weather because you've got ones that are obviously great in the summertime, where you've got these outdoor adventurous parks, the animal parks, things like that. But you've also got ones in the winter, the soft plays, and things like that. Was that always something you were targeting? I mean, did you start off with the summer? We always wanted wanted to get to outdoor attractions before we did indoor attractions. Right. But obviously, you know, building a farm park is millions, whereas building an indoor business is hundreds of thousands. And so we had to start somewhere and then went on the hunt for our first outdoor attraction and now we've got, we did have three. We've just sold one. So we've got two now. And I don't worry about the weather like I used to. If you have just one indoor leisure business, then it's horrible. But we hedge fund against each other, if you like. Yeah. And then through the middle, we have our day nursery business. It's constant. Now, one interesting thing I want to ask you about is your marketing. So if you've got an indoor business, for example, and you see, all right, next week is a crappy weather and it's going to be pissing with rain do you then decide well actually we're going to market the indoor stuff heavily or do you try and market the outdoor stuff heavily at that point there is no point in really marketing an indoor leisure business because you have capacity and i've tried by the way so the way it works with these businesses marsh farm where i sit today we can have up to five thousand people in here so yeah we do marketing for that an indoor leisure business you could probably have three four hundred people max in the building there's no point in doing any marketing other than awareness that you're there when you start. Because when it rains, you'll be feeling booked and busy and you won't be able to fit anyone else in. I've also done everything that I could possibly ever think of to get people to come in when the sun's shining, including giving it away for free, literally free. No strings attached, still no one came. Because if you're a Brit and the sun's shining like it's shining today, you don't want to go inside. My wife's American and she's lived here now, I don't know, about 10 years and still can't get her head around the fact that as soon as the sun's out, people are out in their pants in the parks. She finds it funny, but it's true. And so do you just then acknowledge the fact that those places are going to be empty when the sun's out or do you... And close them. Do you close oh, we them? close them early. Yeah, I mean, we're more aggressive with that than we used to be. It's just the way it is, mate. It's yep. just the way it is. They actually suck when it's this hot. It's actually sometimes not that good for outdoor attractions as well. People want to barbecue at home and go to the beach. In fact, I know lots of people that own beachfront, but on real hot days, people won't even go to the seaside. 
mm. stay at home, paddling pool. Well, if you can show you've got some aircon, they might turn up to your No. No? <laughs> no, I've got aircon in some of them. Makes naff all difference. Wow. I see what you're doing this. You're using this as consultancy rather than... Exactly. I'm furiously scribbling notes as we speak. Yeah. So, James, what would you say... That's the, that's the problem. 20 years of running indoor leisure businesses now, and it just... It just you cannot make Brits go inside when the sun's out. You just can't do it. It doesn't matter how much aircon you've got. They ain't doing it, mate. <laughs> So what would you say is the biggest risk to your business right now and what are you putting in place to mitigate it? Still coronavirus. Yeah, my company's called Party Man and I haven't been able to run a party in nearly 18 months. And it looks like we're recording this at the time on the 14th of June when Boris is about to let us know if the 21st of June our freedom's going to come back. I think we all know that it's going to be extended by four weeks. Then what happens at the end point of that? So over the last 18 months, I've been trying to make my business more resilient, more day nurseries. We've opened two more nurseries. We're going to open another one in September. More out, we bought another outdoor park. Our property business continues to perform well. Day nurseries continue to perform well. We set up Teddy Tastic, our toy selling, uh, soft toy business and sand art. It's selling on Amazon now. And Rossi Ice Cream, we expanded that. I actually think that's going to have a really great couple of years as no one's going to go away. I mean, everyone wants to go away, but why would you be stupid enough to book some? Because, you know, they're just flip-flopping backwards and forwards. You know, you think, oh, yeah, I said to my other half, said, I oh, will go to Vegas at some point this year. I'm just not even thinking about it now. Until yeah. Boris turns around and says, you're free, I'm just not even going to contemplate it. Because I think you get yourself disappointed when you book yeah. something, and then you, you can't go. Definitely. And like you said, Brits want to go away. They want the sunshine. They want to get out. And as soon as you take that away from them, it's a little bit depressing. So, James, what do you think, what would you say is the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you in business? Someone gave me £5 million once. <laughs> Was that after your Calvin Klein modelling? Yeah. The kindest thing, I've been very, very fortunate to have super successful people sit down and be prepared to have a chat with me. Mm. And I would always urge any young whippersnapper that's listening to this or anyone that's thinking about getting into business, you'll be shocked how successful people that see people that want to give it a go, that are going to put the hard work and effort in to give them free advice. Seek them out. There's been multiple people that have done that for me. And that is literally game changing. Brilliant. Well, Thank you. People, I've got a little story here that I love oh, telling good. about this. It's a good little analogy. There's this young bloke in America, and he was in the 70s, and he was obsessed with making computers. And he wrote a letter to a local computer firm saying, have you got any old bits of computer stuff for making a computer at home? And I'll come and work for you for free to pay for the parts. And he's a teenager. He writes off to this bloke called Mr. Hewlett. And he writes back and says, well, you can have a job and you can have the parts for free because you wrote an asked letter. And that Mr. Hewlett was Mr. Hewlett of Hewlett-Packard. And that young man that asked him the question was Steve Jobs. And that, to me, is a classic example of if you ask for help, help will come. And that, that to me, is worth any amount of money that anyone can give. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for giving up your time on your birthday. That's right. I've got one quick question to ask you because we're making a property 
video on my YouTube channel tonight on our predictions of what's going to happen to property prices over the next 12 months. I'm stumped with all this. I cannot believe how much things are just skyrocketing in value. I think we are in a period of, I'm going to say it now, hyperinflation. Let's just take myself away from property. 18 months ago, I would bring in a 40-foot container from China. The freight cost would be about £1,500 to get it found in my warehouse in the UK. It's now £23,000 in 18 months. I went to one of our builders who's building us a train tunnel because we've got, see, we've got train at Marsh Farm. We want a tunnel. He said the wood prices have doubled in the last, what they were. Yeah. He said, and the suppliers have said in the next two weeks, they're going to go up 100% again. So I, what's your thoughts? My thoughts on the inflation side are there is inflation, but a lot of it is being blown out of proportion because of the supply chain. So with yep. your timber, things like that, you had factories that shut up shop, weren't producing. And then coupled with that, you've got massive shipping issues. So yep. I do think there'll be short-term inflation of those commodities because they're just not being manufactured and put out there quick enough. However, yep, I... there's some underlying inflation anyway. The other thing to understand is we're in a deflationary environment when you take out sort of the interest rates where You've got, I don't know, Moore's Law and things like that. Technology is producing things at a much cheaper rate than they were, I don't know, five years ago. Just look at the cost of a 50-inch flat-screen TV compared to buying a 50-inch TV 10 years ago. It's probably a tenth of the price. So there are certain things like that that counter it. However, if you look at property prices, it's impossible to put all property in the UK into one bracket. So if you're talking about, I don't know, industrial logistics, office space in central London, residential properties in the Outer Hebrides, it's, all these places will have different markets. Where you look at residential, for example, I think if you start looking at affordability, because people pay, there is always a ceiling to property of what people can actually pay just because you say i'm not going to sell it for x doesn't mean anyone's going to be prepared to pay that and that's affordability unlike what the papers constantly say is not about wages to earnings to house price it's twofold so the first part is your upfront costs as a as a multiple of salary which will be your deposit and your stamp duty and the second part which is far more important when looking at house price changes is the amount of your salary or monthly wage that goes on servicing your mortgage costs. And at the moment, we've got extremely low rates. We've got longer mortgage terms than they've ever been. If you're a first-time buyer, you can take out a 40-year mortgage, whereas 20 years ago, you were lucky if you were going to get a 20-year mortgage. So all these things are contributing to that. And actually, if you look at residential property on the whole, as much as people won't want to believe this statement, it's far more affordable than it's been on average over the past 50 years when you're looking at that. The problem is people choose to spend money on other things over that. So, for example, for every property crash there's ever been in the UK since mortgage data has been available, that second statistic of earnings, what percentage of your earnings is on house prices, that goes up to about 50% on average in the UK. At the moment, we're about 30, 30% 30 
The other thing to remember is, unlike in the 70s, a lot of families now have two earners. So it's household earnings rather than individual earnings. And that makes a big difference too. Yeah, yeah, I get that. So but do you think, but do you think mm-hmm. that the last year property prices have gone more than usual higher? Yeah, they have. But also when you look at what's happened before that. So this is not a bubble, okay? Because a bubble would presume that actually things have gone up out of control for a while. Now, I'm based in London, and since 2014, house prices have not been going up here. Whereas I invest in some things in Manchester, and actually, since that time, they have been doing quite well. So it's very dependent on where you are, but when the huge amount of value in property prices is based out of London and the Southeast, that has a massive effect on everywhere else. So don't forget, we've had Brexit, we've had all these other things that have meant a lot of foreign money hasn't come into London to kick off the process again. Once that starts coming in, there's going to be differences. The other thing to remember is in London, there's over 80,000 properties that are short-term lets or were short-term lets before the pandemic that have now been turned back into normal sort of year-long ASTs. Now, that's added a huge amount of stock to the market. As soon as tourism opens up again and foreign students start to return, suddenly, well, not suddenly, what you're going to see is over a period of time, those properties will be repurposed back into the short-term lets, taking a lot of stock out of the market for rentals. So that's going to have an effect specifically in London. Whereas, I don't know, you go to Cornwall, they'll be rocketing up there because actually people are getting out and about to the seaside and wanting their holidays over there because they can't go to Spain so I think it's hard to say in a generalized way of what's going to happen to property over the next 12 months the stamp duty change is that going to have effects I mean the maximum saving it can get you is 15 grand so and that's on anything that's sort of over I can't remember it's either 600 or 800 grand so if that's the case is that going to have a major effect on people's purchasing probably not is the answer so, so do you think in 12 months time what will just keep going up i think there might be a little wobble but i don't think there's going to be a correction of 10 percent on prices the thing that would have that sort of effect would be if interest rates went up out of proportion with wages that's what would bring it and then with wages it's got a difficult thing because you're looking at right what's the average earner in that area because you can't suddenly say oh like unemployment's the work is at five percent or whatever it is at the moment well that's good if you look at the average for the last 50 years that's decent it's the best in europe at the moment i think and then it's looking at well what are the jobs that are lost well they're low paid jobs so are those people going to be out there buying houses in those areas well low paid service workers in london are not the people that are buying houses in london so that's not going to affect the demand side so it's difficult to look at it in a broad brush way i think But I'm confident in the long term, again, if I was buying something that I was going to be selling in 12 months, I don't know, let's say I was buying a a house I wanted to do up and sell on in 12 months, then I may be a little bit more concerned about things. So again, it depends where. In London, I'm quite quite optimistic, really. Yeah, I think I tend to agree with most of what you said, Brendan. I mean, I wouldn't be buying doing any flipping at the moment. It would just be buy and hold for me. Yeah, as long as you can get someone in and service that, the debt, and as long as you can get it financed, which is the t- tricky thing with a lot of commercial stuff at the moment. But if you've got the money to go in and buy it, I think there's really good opportunities in some of that commercial stuff. 
So, yeah. Good stuff. All right, mate. Well, I think we're done, aren't we? We are done, yeah. Thank you so much for giving up your time on your birthday. Can, can I give a little big up to my YouTube channel? Absolutely, and I'll put a link in all the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, so the James Sinclair YouTube channel, we've made nearly 600 videos for entrepreneurship, business, property. Just type in James Sinclair on YouTube and poof, I shall appear. Brilliant. Thanks, James. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Cheers. Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on The Rodcast.